This morning, let's go to Ephesians chapter 1. And I'll say it this way. For now, it will be our last uh, sermon into chapter number 1, because we've had 25 sermons on it, counting today, in chapter number 1. And if I haven't impressed you with the fact that God's made a great investment in you, uh, I'm not sure how else to do it, unless you want 25 more sermons uh, to convince you of this very fact. God has made an enormous investment in us. And the reason for that is that we may have all we need to serve Him. And I don't think any of us would say that He has come short in providing for us. And uh, so, today we're going to look at that theme one more time. Here at the end of Ephesians chapter 1, I'm going to start, actually I'm going to read through verses number 15 all the way through verse 23 and we're going to spend our time especially in verse 20, 21 all the way to 23 but here's what it says in 15 for this reason I too having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus which exists among you and your love for all the saints do not cease giving thanks for you making mention of you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ the Father of glory may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. I pray that the eyes of your heart, may, your heart may be enlightened so that you would know what is the hope of His calling, what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints, what is the surpassing greatness of His power toward us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of His might which he brought about in Christ, when he raised him from the dead, seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to, the one to come. He has put in subjection all things in subjection under his feet, gave him as head over all things to the church which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Lord, we need help with this passage today. Not so much in comprehending English words, but comprehending who Christ is and what authority he has. Lord, we're here to understand that we might respond. Respond in a way that honors this great name and seeks to serve him here in this world. We are simply your children who have come to your feet and say, teach us, Lord, today. Teach us and draw us close to yourself. In Jesus' name, amen. Today I want to address the topic of that I've been leading toward all the way through this, and I bring it up here and there. And that second phrase of the theme of this passage that I've used, God's investment in you so that you may have all that you need to serve Him. And for some, when I say serve Him, there's a sense of uh, concern. What do you mean by serve Him? Is this one of those pastoral things where you're going to follow this with an announcement that we need Sunday school teachers. Or, um, of course, BBS is on the horizon. 
And are these just the manipulative ways that we try to get people more involved in church service? Possibly. Uh, if the Lord is drawing you that way, we certainly have holes that you are more than happy to fill. We would love to serve with you. That's obvious. We know that's a need in the church. We're, we are here to serve, aren't we? Good, okay. Uh, all right. Now, on the, on the side also that comes with that, that comes with that, as an individual, as a believer in Jesus Christ, you don't possibly think that he just lavished you off all these blessings so that you could just sit around. You're, I'm sure that you're convinced that he does have something for you to be doing, whether it is in a formal way, church offices or teaching positions or, or whatever, but also in your life. Do you not feel that you are a servant of Jesus Christ? On a daily basis, you wake up on a Wednesday of all things, or a Friday morning and think, I'm a servant of Christ, what can I do for His glory today? Perhaps it's even something that, that the Lord has is, is been working in your heart as to a particular need, a ministry that maybe nobody else recognizes, but He's been laying in a, a burden on your heart, that so, so-and-so, or, or this thing, or whatever has a need for somebody to step in and minister there, to provide for somebody. And maybe you've been hesitant to be that one, even though you see the need. And you say, ah, well, I don't know. Many times they say, I'll pray about it. And what's in our mind is, I'll pray that the Lord provides somebody else to meet that need. And maybe it's been your heart he's been tugging on. Or maybe... Or maybe he might just simply be saying, you know that, that uh, mission opportunity I've been showing you for the last couple of months or last year or so, and I've burned your heart with it. When are you going to take the step and go? And maybe you've been hesitant in that department. I don't know how the Lord works he, in the sense that he does a great variety of ministries through a great variety of people and, and the challenges that come from this. I, I can't possibly predict when I say that we have all that we need to serve Him. But what I desire more than anything is to take out the crutches and the excuses and all that we've mound up to say, well, I can't serve Him because. And this passage certainly does take away every argument we might have, especially in these two. The, the different ways that we answer needs or ministries or service questions are either with the phrase, I can't, or I won't. I can't, or I won't. Now, to say I can't might implore a sense of, uh, a sense of grace in saying it. You know, we, we, we can have a touch of humility a little bit with the, I just can't. You know, we can even say it that way and put that look on our face, right? I just can't. You know, um, and then the reasons come out. And, and all those things might appeal to a very merciful leader who's been asking you to step in. And so we, we've all mastered that, I'm sure, in one way or the other. And that's not always because of an excuse to get out, but sometimes we can't meet a particular situation. But... The other way that reaction comes in the phrase, 
I won't. Now that generally doesn't show a graceful humility, does it? Uh, it, it generally leads to a, a different kind of response. To somebody to say I won't uh, might lead toward harsh or hard or or feelings or even some sort of conflict. Let me try this experiment with you. Imagine that you have a teenage son. Some of you will find that very easy to do. Uh, imagine you have a teenage son, and, and just very generically, I'm going to call him Junior today, so that I don't think we have anyone who really goes by that name, I hope, but uh, Junior. All right, Junior, would you please come and take out the trash? I can't. Now, that would lead to a whole new dialogue, won't it? In, in the sense, I can't. Uh, then you've got to talk to what, what prompted that I can't phrase and, and such like that. Let me try this one. Junior, would you please take out the trash? I won't. Now that is, starts a whole new conversation, doesn't it? You parents understand it well. I won't start something that uh, is not usually the quiet conversation. It's usually more, you know how we respond. Now, many, many times we employ I can't. How many times do our I can't cover our I won't? We may not be so quick to say I won't. But as we are studying this passage, and we've seen that investment God has made into us, we, we see it in verse 3, and I'm just going to read through it so you see it one more time. Look at what it says in Ephesians 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every Spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. What are you lacking? Nothing. So, just so you know what some of them are, here are particulars. He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the kind intention of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace which he freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. In all wisdom and insight he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him with a view to the administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heaven and things on the earth. In him we also have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose, his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance, with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. That's a lot of information. The keys in this whole section is that he has blessed us with everything we need spiritually, in Christ, in Christ, over and over, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, to the praise of his glory to the praise of His glory, to the praise of His glory. 
He's done all this in us, for us, to us, through Christ, that we would be to the praise of His glory. Right? Are we? Is that our intentions as well as what God has designed? Does that purpose come up and we think about how we live? I'm here to the praise of His glory. I serve to the praise of His glory. I live to the praise of His glory. What prompts us when we read such a passage? What, what, what does it call for us to do? I believe this investment and these blessings are designed for service. I believe they're for service. And we need to understand that. That's why this prayer is, is, is springing off this page. When Paul says, for this very reason, I don't cease to give thanks for you. And then he says, very particularly in verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. And then verse 18, really, it goes like this, so that you will know, (laughs) so that you will know. And that's where we've been for several weeks, hasn't it been? What do we need to know? What do we need to understand? Now, this, this passage obviously doesn't say somewhere in here, so that you may serve Him. We can spend the rest of the day going through the New Testament to show it's true. You do have time, don't you? Well, I could let you do that at home too. But the New Testament is full of information that we have been called for service. We have been called for service. We have been called for service. That's one way we bring Him great glory. But here's the, the, the source is what's emphasized in this prayer. The source of service is in two things. We saw in verse number 19, in the first part of verse 20, the surpassing greatness of his power toward us. You know, that answers the question of I can't. More times than not, we say I can't because we don't feel up to it, right? We can't possibly do that. I can't possibly do that. And usually it's related to our supply, our, our power, our source, whatever. We're, we find uh, ourselves very inadequate. Theologically, that is absolutely true. We are completely inadequate to bring him the right service on our own doing. Our own wisdom, our own strength, our own power, uh, our own will. That, that will never measure up to the glory he deserves. He tells us, no, it's not your power I'm giving you. It's my power. The surpassing power of his greatness. And we've studied that for a while. And I hope we're convinced of that, because that eliminates the I can'ts among us. Now, the I won'ts are mentioned uh, or answered in the second part of verse 20 and on to the very end. The surpassing greatness, I'm going to use that phrase one more time. The surpassing greatness of his authority over us. His authority over us. Verse 20, right in the middle, it says, and seated him. At the right hand, in the, at his right hand, in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and you. Oh, that's not there, but you know it means it. Because you're still under him, aren't you? 
and every name that is named, including yours, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. He has put all things in subjection under his feet, and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This is his authority, and his authority is over us. And we need to recognize that. And we need to respond to that. Those are the two things I'm going to show you in these verses. Recognizing his authority in our service, and responding to his authority in our service. Now the first part of that recognizing is, is the fact that he is seated at the right hand. The right hand. It's seated at the right hand of the Father in the heavenly places. Now that, that little phrase, right hand, kind of stood out when I thought it through. The right hand. How often we see that in Scripture? Maybe you haven't thought of it or paid attention to it, but the, the New Testament is loaded with verses that have that phrase, right hand, right in the middle of it. And I'm going to show you that, and it's fascinating that we can put our attention on that for a minute here. Now, when I speak of the right hand of God, or the concept of a right hand, I realize that all the lefties out there might feel left out all of a sudden. Uh, of course, they would say, to be in your, use your left hand, it means you're in your right mind. I've heard that too. But uh, uh, the phrase right-handed, uh, or the concept of right-handed, is somewhat significant in Scripture. Especially when you're working through the Old Testament, and you talk about military concepts. The, the right hand was a significant thing. Matter of fact, anything to do with the right side was, was particularly um, fascinating to study up. Now, there were examples, of course, of 700 uh, men of Benjamin who were left-handed slingers, and they could shoot a hair uh, without missing from quite a distance. That's quite a statement about their capability. Uh, there's also a left-handed Benjamite, uh, who um, slew King Eglon of Moab. Those stories are in the book of Judges, and you could go look those up sometime. But uh, there are examples of left-handed heroes in military things. That, that is absolutely true. But the vast majority were probably right-handed. The phrases used in reference to right-handed uh, throughout military concept was interesting. Uh, if you wanted to hamper somebody uh, in battle, usually you dealt with their right side in one way or another. It might include their eye, it might include their hand, or it might include their foot. But if you worked on the right side, generally you had a military advantage over somebody. Here's one example. A guy by the name of uh, Adonai Bezek, or Bezek, rather, uh, Adonai Bezek um, was a Canaanite king. Uh, you'd find him in the first chapter of the book of Judges. He captured 70 kings in battle and cut off their thumbs and their big toes and had them eat under his table the scraps that would fall off his table. He said, well, that's a lot of people under the table. 70 kings. They had no thumbs and no big toes. Now think of how easy it would be to pick up scraps without a thumb. That was part of the procedure there, because after all, if you take off their thumb, how are they going to really hold their sword? How are they going to throw a spear? It hampered them in battle. Uh, to cut off their big toes. How difficult would it be to run, to participate in, in a battle, to keep your balance even? 
That, that was his strategy. Not a nice, very, not a nice guy at all. Uh, then later on, a guy by the name of Nabat, or Nahash, uh, the Ammonite, besieged a city called Jabesh Gilead. And it says in 1 Samuel 11, Nahash the Ammonite came up and besieged Jabesh Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a covenant with us and we will serve you. They said, no, let's have a peace treaty here. Because they knew they were in trouble. They were surrounded by this Ammonite army. And they said, let's have a peace treaty. And Nahash offered these wonderful conditions. He said to them, I will make this covenant on this condition. I will gouge out the right eye of every one of you. Nice peace treaty, huh? Don't you love the way they did peace treaties back then? No, I agree. I'll just gouge out your right eye. That would make for peace. Yeah, in a sense it would, because if they're missing their right eye, how are they going to fight for battle? Here's the thing. You've got a shield in this hand, and you peek out over the side this way. Now, without a right eye, the, hand has to, the head has to come out even further. Or, switch hands. Or, try to move it this way, but then how do you get your sword around the shield? See, there was a strategy behind it. But it was affecting the right side. It's kind of an interesting concept. Because when David, you know David, a military man, many of his psalms, watch how often this will happen in the psalms David writes. He mentions the right hand of God or the right arm of God or, or such like that because he knew that's where the military power was. That's where the strength was. And here he says in a handful of psalms in just a sample, but in Psalm 16, verse 8, I have set the Lord continually before me, because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. He says again in Psalm 16, verse 11, You make me known, make known to me the path of light. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. He says in chapter 17, verse 7, Wondrously show your loving kindness, O Savior, to those who take refuge at your right hand from those who rise up against them. He does it again in chapter 18, verse 35. You have also given me the shield of your salvation, and your right hand upholds me, and your gentleness makes me great. Isn't that an interesting phrase? Your gentleness makes me great. Later, the psalmist, whoever wrote Psalm 98, verse 1, says, Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done wonderful things. His right hand, his holy arm, has gained the victory for him. Now, you can go through the psalms and see it often. The right hand, the right hand, the right hand, the right hand. And what it comes down to is, is that which keeps you from being shaken. That which provides you with the joy. That which gives you refuge from enemies. That which upholds you. That which gains the victory. Those concepts are over, over and over again in this picture. And so when we come back to this, this concept in Ephesians chapter 1, it says that Jesus Christ is seated at his, at the Father's, right hand in the heavenly places. I think it's a significant phrase. It is a position of exceedingly great favor. A special favor. But it's also in reference to a victorious result. Supreme authority also stands in this position. This is what the Father has done regarding His Son. 
Now, the results of this has come to us. I want to show you some good examples of this. Go over to Romans chapter 8, verse 34. We're going to explore a couple of good New Testament verses here. Romans 8, 34. These are, are rich verses for us, but look at what's in the middle of the context. It says, who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes. Rather, who was raised, and who is where? At the right hand of God. And look at the phrase that follows. Who also intercedes for us. What an important position this is. It says he is at the right hand of God. And he is interceding in the Greek it's intensely, intensely securing something on our behalf. He, he's intensely conferring on our behalf. And it's a continuous concept. We sing the song, and now for me he stands uh, before the Father's throne. He shows his wounded hands and names me as, my own, as his own. Uh, we picture the concept of standing as an advocate. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. We, we talk of the advocate concept, and that he stands before his Father, and he intercedes on us. But this actually says, he sits beside his Father. That's a position of authority. He sits. And there he sits in that position next to his Father, of the, the greatest favor, the most secure uh, position. And he sits because the work is finished for redemption, and he now has authority over sin. And he stands beside his, he sits beside his father and he intercedes for us constantly. Isn't that incredible to think that through? Sometimes we, we do things, I know. We say, boy, you know, I really messed up and he must, he must just want to ignore me right now. He, he, he'd rather I just hide in a closet for a while. He doesn't want to see me. He doesn't want to think about me. He's, he's upset with me. And yet, what did I just read to you? What is he doing next to his father right now and always? Interceding on our behalf. Is that incredible? That is precious to us. That's one of the results of him being in that position. Hebrews 1.3 adds to this. He is a radiance of His glory, the exact representation of His nature, and upholds all things by the word of His power, when He has made clarification for sins. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And then He says it again in chapter 8 of Hebrews, verse 1. Now the main point of what has been said is this. We have such a high priest, who has taken His seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. Now, that's an unusual picture if you study Hebrews chapter 8. A high priest who sits down, all other high priests have to be up and busy, serving, 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 because their work's not done. Jesus Christ is done. He sat down. He sits next to the Father. And it says again in Hebrews 12, verse 2, that we fix our eyes on Jesus, the author, the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. 
So it even calls for us to fix our eyes on him, where he's at. Seated in the heaven, Colossians 3.1 tells us the same thing. It says, if therefore you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking things above where Christ is, at the right hand of God. I can show you verse after verse. But isn't it amazing how that phrase keeps popping up? The right hand of God, the right hand of God, the right hand of God. It speaks of his authority. His authority over our lives. His authority over sin. His authority over forgiveness. His authority in the work of, in our very lives. He is victorious. He does provide. And all of it. From what we read in scripture. He gives us our joy. He gives us our refuge. He gives us what we need to uphold us. He does all that. That's his authority. Now. His place of authority is great. As Peter would say in 1 Peter 3, verse 22, it speaks of him being at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers have been subjected to him. This is one more fact that goes with the whole. That his authority is over everything. That's what Ephesians told us, right? When we looked at these verses, verse number 20, there he is, seated at the right hand of the Father in the heavenly places. And verse 21, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. He's above it all, isn't he? That's his authority. I especially like these phrases. All rule, all authority, all power, all dominion. Too often, when we get caught up in something, we, we as scripture would say, who, who, who does sin becomes a slave to sin. And we say, oh, what can ever break me out of this habit? What can, what can get me away from this terrible... We feel the bondage. Sin always brings bondage. We feel that and we say, it, it's almost hopeless at times. As a matter of fact, our souls feel like that. It's like, it's dark, it's hopeless, I can't get out. But who's above all dominion? Who's above all powers? He is. And if he's not greater than those things, then he is not in complete authority. You see? Far too often we forget where he sits. Far too often we forget who he is. He is our Savior, yes. But he is Lord. He is Lord. And he rules. And this says he's above it all. All rule. All authority. All power. All dominion. And it doesn't matter at what age that thing is named or that person is named. He's above them too. So there's not any, any possibility that in the next 10 years, 15 years, even 100 years if it goes, that somebody on this earth is going to rise up greater than him. It will not happen. Not in this age, not in the age to come. This is his authority. All things subjected to him. This morning I read to you from Philippians chapter 2 as we started. Let's go over there for a minute. I want to show you something. This is, this is where I want to make a transition in what I'm showing you today. Because I think you're convinced of his authority. At least we understand it in concept. Right? We hear it in the words, we see it on the page. We may still be wrestling with it in our own lives and hearts, but we see it's reality. 
Those are facts. Alright? Now, watch what happens here. Philippians 2, verse 5. Very familiar chapter, or paragraph, anyway. Have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of man, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. Now that's authority. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. That's yours too? Every knee. You have knees? All right. Every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess. Now, I don't see a maybe in there, do you? Every tongue will confess. Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Powerful passage. That's his authority, right? Very clear. Watch what happens next. Why? So... He starts verse 12. So then, now, when you see a so then, you know something's coming, right? So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Oh, stop right there. Say, uh oh, what did I just hear? You did not hear. Work for your salvation with fear and trembling. You did not hear that. Because that's not what it says. It's not saying figure out how you're going to get saved. He's not saying that at all. Not work for your salvation. Work from your salvation. In other words, what he has already given to you, work that out in your life. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Let me give you a picture of this phrase. Because this work out concept is to work it fully. That's the idea. To work fully. To, to finish what you're all about. What he saved you for. To, to have your life fashioned by him. To perform what he has made you to be. You know, we are his workmen. Created in Christ Jesus. Do you know the next phrase? For good works that God has already prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. It's important that we understand this because we we need to be working out from the blessings he's done for us in salvation, in our spiritual life, all that he's we work out from that. They they say back in the first century, this term was used, this very word work out, which is not a common one in the New Testament. But they did find it in the writings of another individual who was explaining Silver mining. And he used this phrase for the workers that go into the silver mine. Now, the silver mine is there. They didn't create the silver mine. They, matter of fact, they were sent down in it because the silver was there. So they didn't have to provide any of that. All they had to do was go and work it out. 
And so they'd go into the silver mine with their picks, and they'd get to work, right? They were working out the mine, working out the mine. That's the phrase you're looking at here. You have not bought your salvation. You have not created your salvation. You didn't earn it. He's provided that. He says, now, go dig in it. Go dig. Go mine that out. Go take what those blessings are and put them to service. Here's the rest of the picture. You're to work out your salvation. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, because that should overwhelm you for the first thing, to know what it is you have. But also, this next phrase, it always gets me worked up anyway. For it is God who is at work in you. Do you know that? That's what I've been trying to show you from Ephesians 1 all the way through. It's God who is at work in you. Both to will and to work for His good pleasure. That's the answer to I won't. The authority of Jesus Christ. The authority of Jesus Christ. He has that name which is above every name. Every knee bows. Every tongue confesses He is Lord. And because of that, we can serve, folks. We can go into service. We can mine it out that He's already provided for us. Because it's God who's at work in us. And He's changing our will, isn't He? That our will be like His. That our work be for His glory. This is how we respond to His authority in our service. We know what He has done. And we serve Him. Instead of I won't, we start to say I will. I will. In Ephesians, look at these words again. Ephesians 1, look at verse 22 and 23. These are not just accidentally tossed in the middle of a prayer, but very specific things. He has put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. To the church. You know what? That will never change. That will never change. There will never be a replacement head. Christ is the head of the church. Is he the head of this church? That's the way it must be. He's the head of this church. He's the head of the pastor. He's the head of the elders. He's the head of the members. He's the head of all of us. He is the head of his church. That's the way it ought to be. That's the way it says here. He is the head of the church. And the church is his body. It is his body. It is his body. And it is him who fills all in all. I'd love to spend time just filling out that phrase. Him who fills all in all. Wow, there's a picture here that's incredible. I want to I just illustrate this. I've got more, but I can't. Um, I want to illustrate this this way. In your mind, or maybe on a piece of paper, you draw a circle. And say so that circle represents all that the church is. All the ministry, all the activity, all the positions, all the, you know, you name it. Everything that we sum up in the concept church. It's in this great big picture of a circle. And right in the middle of that circle is a line in which a name belongs. And let it be known that whoever's name you put in the center of it 
Everything circles around that name. Now, if we have come here to be served, if we have come here to see how people will minister to us, if we have come here to be a spectator, we might as well put our names in the middle. Because if that's what we think the church is, it all circles around us. Who then is the head in that picture? Who then has the authority in that picture? But what a difference it is to know that it's Christ who's at the center, whose name belongs in there. We serve Him. We minister to His people. We are active in His work. We both seek to work and to will by His glory. And the church circles around Him. It is His authority, and we're glad to be under it. We're glad to be under it. When it comes to strength, we don't say, I can't, but we say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Because He has that authority. It's His strength, surpassing strength toward us, that we might serve Him. And when it comes to authority, we no longer say, I won't, but I will. I love the way Isaiah said that. Don't you, Isaiah 6, you know the passage. Who will go for us? And what's Isaiah's first words? Sing me! Right? Are you ready for that? You say, I don't know what he's sending me to. Isaiah didn't know either, really. He said, just send me. Who's in charge? Who knows where you're going? Abraham did that. The Lord said, Abraham, go. He got, he went. Didn't even know where the next step was supposed to take him. But he went. Why? Because he trusted the authority of the one who sent him. Are we there? Do we trust his authority? He is over all things, isn't he? Does that mean tomorrow too? Yes. That's his authority. He told his disciples, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. That phrase authority is going to keep popping up, folks, and we have to come to a a response to it. There's no better arrangement than than when Jesus is Lord. No better arrangement. Lord in my life, Lord in our church, He must be, not only because God designed it so, and that's primary here, but also he will be. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that he is Lord. This is the one who has blessed you and me so. This is the one who is our Lord and made a great investment in us so that we have everything we need to serve him. So how do we respond to that? I will, but I won't. Now it comes down to your own heart, doesn't it? Let's talk to the Lord about that. Heavenly Father, you know each and every single one of us in this room, where we stand with you, what we wrestle with, what you have designed for us, what you would have us to do, what you have been prompting our hearts to do, what you have designed us with in our own particular gifts, how you've put together this particular local body here in Hillsdale, Oklahoma.
that we might function together for your honor and glory and serve you. All of these things you know, Lord. We come before you, understanding who you are. You are the God of authority. And we are blessed to be called by your name. May we not show to the world a resistant church, a rebellious church, a difficult church to move. But when they look upon us, may they see a church willingly serving their Lord, willingly following in His steps, willingly learning of Him and and doing what He has called us to do. The testimony is not so much who we are, but the Lord who we serve. And I pray, Lord, that we're giving an exact representation of who we know you to be and the way that we live. We are thoroughly challenged by this passage, Lord. And I pray that it changes us. Changes us for the rest of our lives. That how we walk and how we live might reflect what you have done what you have made us, and the fact that we shall be with you forever in glory. What a great, great position we have, because we have a great Lord. You have so blessed us. Now help us, Lord, to be that blessing in the world around us, and in this church, and in the service you've called us to. In Jesus' name, amen.